And we're back on the program. Dr. Robert Linden with us uh, talking about his new book. Uh, we very much appreciate you with us. Dr. Linden was continuing his, continuing his talk about how he was getting out of the practice and found a somebody who could help him to take over the practice. Uh, Dr. Linden, good morning. Hi. How are you doing? Come good. On. Thank you very much. Still here. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> That's very helpful for me today. So you okay. you were looking for somebody, and uh, right. you said, indeed, you know, wh- when you have a certain attitude, and like you say, there is a certain compulsiveness in you, but I think it is more the passion that you have for caring about people. And it, it, like I said in the introduction, you put your patient first, your family second, yourself third. Uh, it's something I resonate with. My wife will tell you that, that uh, when you really enjoy what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. But at the same time, there is a possibility that you end up doing so much work and then when the when you're doing what you're doing, but the whole industry around you is changing for whatever reason, it's changing, and you go like, "Whoa, wait a second, you know that's not really the direction we should be going." Then you get frustrated with all of a sudden the bureaucracy that comes up, all the paperwork that you have to take care of, uh, the way that patients are reacting, the way that the media is portraying. The, the medical field, uh, the, the food industry is changing and letting people eat junk that makes them sick. And you go like, whoa, you know, I'm working uphill here. There's no way to get out of this. And so I understand that you get tired at some point. And I don't know if that was one of the reasons why you hit that point that you say, you know, maybe I should retire. But uh, so you were looking for somebody who may be able to take over your practice. Right. And it was interesting, like what you just said, because I was listening to a CD from the American College Physicians yesterday on concierge medicine, which we can discuss a little later. And, uh, I mean, it was just one physician after another is kind of giving the same story, and, and the choices are very few. I mean, when you sort of get tired out or burned out, I mean, you can continue doing what you're doing and, and, and sort of die at your desk one night at 10 o'clock, which is what I was afraid was going to happen to me. You can give in and sort of give in to manage health care and give in to you know, the paperwork and start to become a mediocre doctor and, and not fight for your patient, not be your, an advocate for your patient anymore, or you can sort of get at the top and, and do something different. And I yeah. decided, I always liken myself to sort of Sandy Koufax. I said, you know, I'm not going to give in to this. I'm not going to become cynical. I'm not going to become a mediocre doctor. I'm going to work at the top of my game for my patients as their advocate until I can't do it anymore, then get out. And, and in essence, like you said, that that's the reason for the book, because I did feel guilty. And and this was just a way of transitioning from taking care of 2,000 people that I took care of in the office to maybe something like going from private practice to public health, where a public health physician, you know, creates rules and regulations and does studies for the entire nation yeah. to teach everybody. And that's what you know, I kind of envisioned the book as, which was an educational tool plus plus something to vent my frustration because I felt a little guilty. I'm in a small town, 15,000 people, and the patients are my you know, friends and neighbors, like you said, or at the opening of the show, and, yeah. and I just didn't want to abandon them, and I wanted to continue to be their advocate. And I think they understood. They said, you know, we understand you're going to die there one night, and uh, you had to get out, but um, thanks for the book. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so the new guy came in, in, in September of 2007, and I was going to stay on until June of 2008 and, um, and to get him accustomed to the practice. And it was an interesting story because it kind of gives a little, in, in, you know, 
sidelight and a little bit of uh, inroad into what happens in malpractice companies. But uh-huh. uh, for physicians specifically, um, when we came to Connecticut, the main malpractice company in Connecticut for doctors was Aetna. But the problem was they were settling all the cases. I mean, they basically have a patient sued a physician Aetna settled without the okay of the doctor. And what happens when that happens is even cases that are not malpractice get paid to patients and patients and lawyers come to understand that and then everybody's suing doctors all over. So and we dropped that and then the doctors of Connecticut went to CNA who said they would require, you know, they would have the doctor involved with decisions and would not settle unless the doctor said okay. Yeah. But then the CNA went up, started going up in their premiums. So we started our own company called CMIC, Connecticut Medical Insurance Company, back in the early 80s. And and I had just been sued on a case with Yale, and I was a little upset with it because I thought I had done nothing wrong. And uh, so I asked to be placed on the risk management committee of CMIC and ended up on that for like 17 years and ended up on the board of directors for about 12 years of that <laughs> company. Okay. And I, and the first crisis we went through was with the obstetricians, and as many of the listeners know, um, you know the problem with OOB is when when you have a when in the medical term, medical practice area is called bad baby case. But if you have the the baby comes out and it's dis, disformed, malformed, or something's wrong with it, it may not have anything to do with the obstetrician and no. what he did, but no. he or she did. But it's it settles for one to three million dollars automatically. Oh, so these God. these malpractice companies became quickly to dislike obstetricians, and what they did was they jacked up. And this is back in the, in the early 1990s, jacked up premiums to over $100,000. And obstetricians had to leave malpractice companies and form their own or form gigantic specialty groups or, or just go bare without any insurance. And, um, but then, and I, I, understood, I could understand where I was coming from, but as I sat on this board, I started to see our internist premiums going up. Um, like they're over three years, we went from 5000 per doctor to 8000 to fifteen thousand to finally twenty two thousand dollars a year wow. for our malpractice insurance and wow. and my and, and that and the reasoning was quote unquote internists were getting sued for delay in diagnosis or misdiagnosis. But really? I, I could not see this price going quadrupling in three years, three or four years. And my partners, you know, we got a meeting and my partner said, you know, we have to leave this company. Just we can't stay with and this is a company that we formed yeah. with our money. Yeah. It was, it's a mutual company owned and operated by doctors. And they had priced us out of their... So we went to another company from Massachusetts, another mutual company owned by the Massachusetts doctors called ProMutual. And their, their, their premiums were like half of CMICs. And, and we stayed with them. And then all of a sudden, one day, it was really... One day, they came and looked at our... You know, invest, you know came and, and surveyed our office. And, and I didn't... It was a funny story because my partner, who takes care of most of the business part of our practice... Um, had mentioned to us that, that, that the malpractice company may be coming to survey the office, but he never told when they were coming, and he took a vacation. He went on vacation, and sure enough, this person from the malpractice company showed up, and, uh, and I didn't know the person. I thought it was somebody interviewing for a job. So <laughs> our, our, our practice, I don't think we would be considered a really super professional practice. We joked with our patients. Like we'd walk people out to the front desk. We'd be joking with other people in the waiting room. You know, with HIPAA regulations now, you know, that stuff is frowned upon. You know, it's all confidentiality. Yes, yes. But, uh, so this person was behind the desk, and they, and they were talking to our staff, and I didn't think anything of it. And I was joking with the patient at the, at the window. And the bottom line is we get a letter from the malpractice company claiming that, number one, we don't have a glass partition between the office staff and the waiting room. And I was always dead set against that because I think that just 
patients hate glass partitions. They really look at doctors saying, well, you prima donna, you can't, you know, you close your, you know, it's like a bulletproof, you know, basically in a, a bulletproof window in a seedy motel, you know, they open opening and shutting these windows. And, yeah, yeah, and they yeah. kind of cite us because our x-ray license wasn't up on the wall. It was in one of our desks, and we had a license for our lab, but that wasn't posted on the wall. They didn't like our handwriting, and they formulated this list of things, and not not and 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 they they sent it to my partner, who I think he's kind of a little bit. He runs our IPA in our state, our, our HMO IPA. And he really kind of considers himself a little bit untouchable, and I think he got ticked off with the letter and threw it in the circular file, you know, in the get in the waste bear. Yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. tell anybody about it. <laughs> and uh, the next thing we get was basically the fall of that year when the new guy had come, 2007, a letter saying they're not re- re- they're not insuring us anymore after January 1st, 2008. Oh. And and we said why, and they wouldn't really wouldn't really tell us. I mean, they just basically said you got this letter, and we never heard anything. And and we didn't know anything about the letter. My partner claims he never got it. I'm yes. not sure. And, and and basically, but it was clear that they wanted internists out also. They were kicking internists out, and this is how they were going to do it. So my partner had a meeting with them, a closed meeting. He didn't let anybody else go in, um, came back to us and said, you know, basically, um, we work something out. You know, they'll, they'll insure the, you know, the four of us, but, but Lyndon, who's retiring in six months, they don't want to insure him anymore. So oh. I had to actually hang it up as of, December 2007, and then they went ahead and they, they actually, after they did that, they actually surcharged doctors. If they don't like the doctor, they actually throw another surcharge, and they a 25% increase in our premiums for three or four years. Wow. And it's amazing, because not anybody, nobody in my practice had ever been sued, you know, lost a malpractice suit. There's something called the National Practitioner Data Bank, which basically puts, which, which is a data bank where physicians that are either sued and have to settle or lose a case or if you've had problems with Medicare or hospital privileges or the drug enforcement agency, they get thrown into this data bank so you can look at physicians, see the bad guys, you know. And none of us were in that. And, and this, yet this insurance company was kicking us out. So, wow. so um, I kind of, you know, basically left December 2007. Uh, it turns out my, my brother-in-law lives in Cape Cod, and actually his next-door neighbor happens to be the head of the board of directors of the pro-mutual company in Massachusetts. And I, I questioned them a couple times on why I was not reinsured, and at least for the next six months until June of 2008, and never got anything back. And finally he talked to them, and I got a letter saying that, well, I wasn't reinsured because my notes weren't signed. They're always signed. They weren't dated. They're always dated. And they couldn't, and my handwriting was terrible. Well, you know, what, what else is new, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, most people are thrown out of a company or not reach. Or reach I, actually, I actually thought that doctors are taught to write horrible in the medical well, school because it's always, uh, you, you, you can never read what they write. Right. You have to write quickly. And yeah. in my case, we did not have electronic medical records or yeah. dictation. And, and I was compulsive on that too. And, and I put everything down in the record so I could read it. And I consider that confidentiality. Nobody else could read it. So the patients were, could could feel safe yes. that their records were confidential. Yes. I could read it. My partners could read it. So there was not a problem there. And if anybody really, an insurance company, wanted a, you know, a record or you know, I typed it up and sent it out so they could they could read it. Or if it was a consult to somebody else, it was it, it was typed up. So there was not a problem with that. And and, um, and most doctors that are not reinsured, you know, they're re- not reinsured because they have egregious malpractice suits and or they've lost multiple lawsuits and things like that. So this is news to us and. 
And uh, but the bottom line is, I I I, I walked out December 2007. I took several days off to again, like you said, re-energize myself. And then I started this book and and um, and uh, and uh, I wrote, started my adventure of writing my book, which took the, follow- the next year to do wow. to finish. Wow. That is uh, what a great story. Uh, but at the same time, I, I hear every word you say, and I can just visualize that. That has indeed has become the whoever started the industry around you, uh, the, the change in the industry. It is you have to conform with that. And and for whatever reason, they write down like it is not hygienic or it is not uh, it's not appropriate or we are indeed a different breed. We are separate from our patients. Uh, we're not one of them. We are above them. Whatever whatever started that, you go like no 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 no. This is not how I was trained. And like you mentioned, Dr. Gene Stolomon and and his inspiration that he had on you. That is indeed what most people would like to have in a doctor that they say, you know what, I'm opening myself up here. I'm I'm talking about some really deep-seated issues that come up or some bad pains or this disorder that I have that I need to have a question, that I have a question about and want to have an answer for. They want to talk to a doctor and they want to feel that they're connecting with the doctor so that they actually get some sound advice. And I, therefore, I think the, the, the time that a doctor needs to spend with a patient is maybe more at one visit and less at another visit. You cannot just make a cookie-cutter type of visit uh, uh, system whereby you say we have five to ten minutes and you're in and out the door. Uh, some people take more time than others. And, and when you try to do that and the system around you says, no, 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 no we're going to change it, you all of a sudden end up being the rebel, even though you right. go by the basic the basic, uh, um, what you may call it, the, 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 the whole idea behind the doctor. So how can you make a diagnosis if you don't understand the person you're working with? And, and when you look at the physician's desk reference, the PDR of prescription drugs, and you see how thick that book is with everything it explains about when to take it, how to take it, the side effects, what you cannot take with it, uh, what contraindicates, Nobody understands that book by heart. How can you? How can you uh, just say, "Well, take this"? And like you mentioned earlier, the overprescribing of patients that mo- many people have five to fifteen medications every day, and and as they get older, it only becomes more medications. There is nothing wrong with medication. It is just that when things become too much and for too long a period of time, there is a problem. And as a doctor, you need to go back and say, "Hey." wait a second, we're, we're, what was, again, the problem that we're trying to treat you for instead of just going after the symptoms and trying to treat the, 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 the symptoms? And and um, I feel I, I can totally understand that you got frustrated with it and that you, uh, uh, you know, the best thing you could have done, indeed, is write a book. <laughs> <laughs> so that you, you know, and, and then and then talk about it. And I appreciate you spent your time with us on the radio program today. There is indeed a lot we need to talk about. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about the, um, let's see, what what are we going to do? Um, but just a couple of comments on what yes, you were saying. Yes, yes. You know, it's, it's interesting because I agree with you completely about the professionals and things. I mean, I think doctors do sort of talk down to patients too, way too often. I, You know, and I've... Uh, you know the way I ran the practice. You know, my my mother-in-law could kill me because her my 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 wife's father was a pediatrician in New Jersey and always drove the Cadillac and dressed well and 
and I would drive through town in my old Land Cruiser with my shirt off, and I she would just shirk and go nuts. <laughs> and uh, the practice is always a funny practice because my partner's father was head of Cornell New York you know, Medical College, and I mean head of the New York Hospital, and was on boards and things. So my we came to town. There was a sort of a wealthy area that he actually moved into, and these were people, those summer people, they came up from New York City and Wall Street and Hartford and Washington, D.C., and he took care of those people. I took care of the plumbers and electricians and things like that because they were more my type. And um, and I really enjoyed that. And so it was sort of, sort of down-home you know, country medicine. Yeah. Um, the tape yesterday was really interesting because it brought home the thing, again, about individualizing. And, and the problem was one doctor said, you know, I, you know I, the reason I picked concierge medicine is because, you know, I was tired of the patient coming in with 10 problems and their daughter would come in who was a PhD who had another five questions and I couldn't do this in 15 minutes. And so I gave up my regular practice and cut it to this concierge thing, which is, you know, treating 500 people, uh, you know, in your total practice and, and requiring to pay cash, you know, as a yearly retainer fee, anything from like a 1000 to $7,000. Oh, but yeah. the problem is that that patient doesn't, isn't, common i mean and and what happened what i did is you know so if somebody had too many problems to go over i told them you know tell you what look i, I really have to go into the next patient but i'll call you after office hours and we'll go over it I see. or if it really required an exam i said look you know i'm finishing up at six thirty-seven tonight um come on back at seven i'm doing some you know paperwork and knock on the front door and come in and we'll finish this off and it you know that's the way i got around it i extended my hours longer which a lot, of, a lot of people won't do anymore, right. but that's how you do it. You don't give into the system and then get rid of three quarters of your practice and demand cash from the other quarter and say you're setting up a concierge practice. I mean, I, at least I don't think that should be done. I think it's somewhat unethical, yeah. but it's it's sweeping the country now. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. We, you know, talk over, talk about a little later. Hmm. Wow, that is, uh, you know, that's good. That's that's true. Now, the uh, you want to talk a little bit about the the primary care physician, the the whole idea of what is a primary care care physician, because it is indeed, as you mentioned in your book, the numbers are dwindling, and there are different reasons for that. Um, right. The, it, right. It is it is the income, it is the malpractice insurance, the, uh, the just the long hours. Uh, if you're really passionate about what you do, and and I have the same thing. My wife says, "Do I work too many hours?" But when you really love what you're doing, it really is something that it, it's all part of the same thing. There's just different uh, spokes in the wheel, so to say, and, and, and everything needs to be greased and everything needs to be taken care of. But there has to be indeed a balance in life, and I realize that as well. And, and I'm sure you have a lot more time on your hands right now. But at the same time, when you see all the people with the problems. Now, uh, I also feel, uh, Dr. Linden, that at times... We, there needs to be the education part whereby we tell people, listen, if you really were concerned about your health, there are certain things you need to do in order to make these office, office visits less frequent. And that means that people have to learn how to start taking care of themselves better and not come in with every little, little problem that is going on with them. So I, I feel when you talk about the problems in the, in, the, in, in the field of medicine today, in the healthcare system, there is too much emphasis indeed on, on dependency on doctors and specialists. There is not enough, uh, there's not enough uh, how you call it, focus on what can we do to take care of people. And as you often talk, not you, but in general, we often talk about comparing a person taking care of themselves to 
taking care of your car, if you only get one car in your life, which is your body, how well would you take care of it? You will make sure you buff it up and you change the oil and you do the, uh, you make sure it's all, uh, it's uh, kept in the garage at times and you're careful on the road. You don't want to bump into anything. And I see that people are very, many people are very lackadaisical about their body and they're not always respecting their body enough that it is actually very vulnerable. And so I, 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 what I try to do with the program such as this and when I talk to people on a daily basis is to try to help them to understand that there are many tools available in grocery stores and in books and libraries, etc., where they can learn how to, edu- how to become better, how to get a stronger immune system so that they can start taking care of themselves and that you as a physician are just there to help the people when there really is a problem and things are out of whack and show them how to get back into shape. You see my point? Right, I agree. I think that, you know, what you say comes home because, uh, you know, basically the medical schools, I think, at this point are very disease-driven. I mean, they're, they're, and it comes back to what's happened to primary care and why it's disappearing because, you know, or basically because it's disappearing, we're, we're actually going to a subspecialist-based model and the medical schools treat yes. patients as diseases, and yes. not patients. When you start to do that, then you get into this whole thing about everything is treated by drugs, and everything is treated and worked up with tests. That's right. And, and what was Dr. Linden? Care. We're going to have to run for the break here. When okay. we come back, we're going to talk about that more. The Rise and Fall of the American Medical Empire is the book. We'll be right back. <laughs> 